Welcome back to the Foreign Desk Podcast. I'm Lisa Daftari. Will the U.S. continue allowing China to take advantage of us? That's the question. China has been lying. They've been manipulating. They've been copying. They've been stealing. Uh, we've gotten no answers from them about many things, and they continue to make their march on their way to becoming a dominating world power. Um, what do we need to know about all this? What should we worry about with the China threat? And to make sense of all of this for us, I want to call upon Chris Fenton. Welcome to the program. Uh, Chris is an author, a China expert, an advisor, a producer. He's author of the book, this could not be more timely, Feeding the Dragon, Inside the Trillion Dollar Dilemma Facing Hollywood, the NBA, and American Business. Uh, of course, referring to our dealings with China. Welcome to the program, Chris. Yeah, Lisa, thanks for having me on. It's an honor. You know, um, What's amazing about the work that you do, obviously, I know you're on TV, radio, you write um, all about the China threat, understanding the China threat, different aspects of it, um, is your background. You started out um, at, just as, as a uh, talent agent for the William Morris Agency. We're all familiar with that. Of course, people here in Southern California know that very well. But even before that, you studied engineering in college um, at, of course, Cornell University. So you're not dumb. Obviously, you're very smart, but what brought you to this area of the world? What, I mean, how did you gain this perspective and what makes you the China expert that you are? Well, um, well, first of all, I call myself sort of a populist China expert. My, my entree into China wasn't as a PhD in Mandarin studies or in China history. It was more about falling into the business of commercial and cultural exchange between the two superpowers roughly around the turn of the century, uh, the year 2000. And through the, you know, the school of hard knocks, uh, trials and tribulations of trying to navigate the China market in regards to getting partners of ours that were American companies, um, allowing them access to that market for their products and services, um, getting that approval through the Chinese Communist Party, and then ultimately figuring out how to get access to the consumers to create awareness and both excitement about the about the products and services. Um, that was really the goal of what we had. And a lot of that exchange I dealt with in the cultural space. I mean, if you look behind me, you see movie posters. Um, I come from a Hollywood background, like you said. Um, I started as a, a mailroom attendee at the William Morris Agency, which was the largest talent agency around. And then through um, that, I became a feature film and television agent and came across a small Chinese uh, company that was growing rather quickly. And we started financing small independent films with Chinese equity. Um, and they were American movies uh, in with English language. And as that progressed, I started to see this massive opportunity to jump headfirst into that U.S.-China dynamic um, as a career. And that's where I am today. I mean, can you can you bridge that for us? I mean, what were you seeing um, in the culture that brought us? And it's so interesting that you said you didn't have a PhD. Last week we had on, um, you know, a PhD student who naively was studying for his PhD about Iran, um, and then because of what he was learning in 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 the realm of just academia, he went over to Iran. Okay, this is lovely, and he got apprehended for over three years. Um, so obviously, what we learn in the books is not does not translate. Uh, as to what we see on the ground, and you got to see that up front. So what did you see there that 
brought you to so many of your conclusions about, you know, what's going on now? Yeah. So the important part of, of why I wrote this memoir, um, of, of my career and, and I'm 50 years old, so, um, I'm not retired or anything, but I thought it was a really interesting, colorful journey to tell as one of the cogs in the wheel that was caught between two sort of warring superpowers as one of them was an established capitalistic country of democracy and the other was coming into its infancy stage of capitalism um, under communist rule. And the thought was, I really wanted people to read uh, actually something that was really engaging and entertaining. And there's a lot of fun stories in there too. Um, but also understand how people like myself fell under, I guess, the spell of globalism and the mission of opening China to our products and services that made us think what we were doing was in the best interests of Americans and the best interests of the Western allies, because we felt like the more products and services we got in there, the better our GDP growth would be, the more jobs we would create. And ultimately, the more we would bring this communist country towards us as a democracy, creating that aspirational quality through those products and services that would make the people push their government to change. And as we know now, looking back, that was all misguided. It was not working. Not only did we not create the jobs that we thought we were going to create, but that GDP growth was also a bit of a mirage. It was a bit of a sugar high because now, even on posts I had today, somebody dug up a 2012 speech I made at Stanford University, where Hollywood represented 98 cents of every dollar made at the Hollywood box office. If you cut to February of 2021, Hollywood only represented 1% of the box office. So that misguided belief that GDP growth would occur, it did happen in the short term. But in the long term, they've utilized this process swap, the talent exchanges, all the other things we did to get access. Now it's being used against us with imitators and the ability for them to do things almost at the level that we have been able to. So you, you tie that with what we saw with Hong Kong and the fact that Hong Kong believed what we, we also believed, which was eventually China was going to become more like Hong Kong, more like the United States. But instead... Hong Kong is now like China, right? So that aspirational quality that we thought was going to drive them towards democracy has not occurred. So those three levels have made me realize that we have to change course. And if you watch some of the better experts out there talk about it, whether it's a Matt Pottinger or a Bill Bishop or a Liz Economy or whoever, you realize that our time is running out to set a course of change. I would argue that China 2025, that goal that they set, that really is the deadline that we have to get this fixed. Wow. So um, to summarize, you're saying we've created a monster and how do we now you know, curb this monster? And do we even want to? I mean, um, you know, the title we, we chose for this podcast is Will the Biden Administration Allow China to Walk All Over Us? And maybe the short answer is yes, particularly when you look at their intended strategy. I want you to take a listen to Secretary of State Blinken on this. Whether it's uh, China, Russia, or anyone else, uh, we're not standing against uh, any of those countries. Um, we're not trying to, for example, contain China or keep it down. 
Yeah, so um, it's probably not best strategy to tell your adversary that we're not trying to contain you. We're not trying to take you down. We're not trying to stop you. I mean, what's your reaction to this? Well, I'm a little torn, okay? I, I was nervous about when Biden took over that he was going to essentially dismantle this idea of where Trump was taking us in regards to realizing China was a challenge and sort of backing off and trying to go back to where we were prior to the Trump administration. Um, what I've seen since, though, is that uh, President Biden has surrounded himself with with essentially people that are relatively hawkish like myself. I would say on a scale of dove to hawk, where hawk wants to go to a uh, true hawk is a 10 wanting to go to war. A dove wants to go back to what it was and even better. Um, I am probably a six. And if I look at who's surrounding uh, President Biden, whether it's Rosenberger or Blinken or Austin or Jake Sullivan or Eli Ratner, et cetera, I would say they're averaging around a six or a seven, too, which is really good. The question is now whether the business community is going to muddy and water down essentially that hawkish sentiment, because right now we tend to have bipartisan support to realize that China is a threat, is a challenge to the United States of America and our allies. So the political environment here is not very copacetic towards the Chinese Communist Party narrative. So now the Chinese Communist Party is pushing the business community to lobby on their behalf. And we're seeing the ramifications of that just over the last couple of weeks when you've seen Nike and H&M and Hugo Boss and Adidas, right, all companies of the Western allies and ourselves get into a lot of hot water over issues because that's China spreading their wings and saying, hey, remember how important our market is. You go tell your leaders that. And the same thing that we saw yesterday with Boeing making a statement saying we need to separate politics and issues we have with China from trade. Otherwise, us, Boeing, we're going to lose our business to Airbus. I would argue Airbus and Boeing are both losing their business to a company that is building planes, commercial jetliners that are coming online this year that look exactly as if Boeing and Airbus made it and had a baby. Okay, so they're both going to lose. So I would argue they both should take a stand along with other industries and businesses and try to push back some of this CCP encroachment that's occurred over the last decade. Um. I mean, why is that not the popular position then to stop them? Why is it not, you know, a bipartisan, not just a bipartisan? I mean, we're talking about human rights. We're talking, you know, look at Hong Kong, look at the Uyghurs, look at there's there's so many. I mean, if politics isn't your thing, maybe you can look and say, well, China's taking advantage of the mom and pop shops. You know, they're taking advantage of um, their own people. Look at the, you know, the 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 all of the, the very, very brutal crackdowns in, in every single way. Um, you know, why, why isn't there more outrage? Well, it's really interesting. I consider myself a nonpartisan patriot. I don't like to take the side of red or blue here because this is an issue that affects all Americans and I don't care what your political designation is. So we need to unite on this. It's a common challenge and we need to figure out how to innovate ourselves a, a good solution moving forward. That said, I have seen the China issue become more red um, and polarized 
than it should be. Um, the right has definitely taken a tougher stand on China over the past few years. Um, and that's been very frustrating to me because quite frankly, I need to get on platforms for both left and right to talk about this issue. If you look at the companies that benefit from China, and what I'm going to do is answer your question as money. Money is what is making this very difficult to address. And if you look at the companies that are benefiting the most from the China market, they tend to be companies that benefit uh, more on a, a left-leaning platform, right? It's, it's the tech companies, it's the Teslas, it's the Apples, it's the Starbucks, it's the Hollywood business, it's the NBA, et cetera, Nikes, whatever. Um, when you look at same human rights criticisms that might be coming from the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, those tend to be right-leaning businesses that are benefiting from the exchange of commerce there, whether it's the oil and gas and energy business or military industrial complex, et cetera. So what's interesting is you have equal human rights issues in two different countries, yet they've been polarized by the different political parties. One of the things we need to do is start looking at this in a more consistent manner. The way we address the MBS lack of punishment for the Khashoggi murder is something that China took loud and clear as something that we were very conflicted on as a nation when it comes to human rights issues. And that was a pretty cut and dry situation. Now you look at China, where the Xinjiang province and the atrocities that are happening in the Uyghurs tend to be a overwhelming circumstantial evidence that that is indeed happening, yet it's not quite as um, smoking gun as what happened to Khashoggi. And they're playing into that narrative. They're starting to put, you know, disseminate narrative out there that, well, maybe you're wrong. The West is reading it the wrong way. We're actually training these people, educating them. And I've been on U.S. congressional delegation trips to China where we hear that. We say we hear in every room about how they're providing opportunities, education, things that these people have not had in the past. And us, the Chinese Communist Party, are doing good things for these minorities. And that's something where they're really playing into the fact that our consistency is just not there. And it's allowing them to muddy the waters on policy. Right. No, and I, I agree with that. We should be much more consistent on human rights. I, the one thing that I would differentiate between the Saudi Arabia and China analogy is that we have a lot of cooperation with Saudi Arabia, with an intel and counterterrorism measures all throughout the Middle East. They are, are one of our biggest allies there, whereas China, we've seen no cooperation from them, not, no transparency, no cooperation. Uh, and it, it seems like it's getting worse and worse. But Back to your bipartisan comment, um, do you think it matters who's in the White House? I mean, we saw obviously a very different um, approach by the Trump White House. We saw tariffs and tariffs and tariffs, and we saw the prices of many common goods um, rise in this country, making it uncomfortable both for American entrepreneurs as well as Chinese. Um, was that working? Um, you know, does it matter? Well, look, I, I look at, and, and by the way, I live on the west side of Los Angeles, so bringing up Donald Trump's name out here is is something uh, somewhat toxic, right? But I'll say I don't care how much you don't like Donald Trump or how much you do like him. The one thing that he definitely did in regards to China is he ran up to the fire alarm and he pulled it and he made it sound loud so that all of us knew or heard that China could be a threat, could be a challenge to us. And quite frankly, that was the best thing he did because we do know that it is a challenge. It is a threat to our nation and our Western allies. And I, I would say if you just woke up today and didn't know 
who was president of the United States, but you just looked at policies that were in place today versus one year ago, you might actually believe that Donald Trump was still our president. There have not been changes to any of the policies he's had in terms of sanctions, Hong Kong, Taiwan, uh, various trade issues, uh, tariffs, et cetera. It's been pretty static quo. So I would say that now there tends to be a pretty good bipartisan support at the administration level of what China represents. And we're starting to see that disseminate into Congress. We're seeing bipartisan approaches on certain bills. Chuck Schumer is talking about things along with the GOP side of the equation. So we're starting to see that where it's going to get muddied, and it already is, is when it comes to business interests. And that's what the Chinese Communist Party is taking full advantage of. Well, you know, and they're obviously taking advantage of the fact that we rely so heavily on, on China. You were saying we we're hoping to bring jobs, but they took our jobs and we we're hoping to bring manufacturing and they took all of our manufacturing. I, I read a, a children's book for my you know one year old this morning and I look on the back. It says made in China. I'm like, even this, you know, book that's just, you know, sold on Amazon, everything, everything is made in China. Um, how do we or is there a way for the West to recoup? control when they have so much of it? Well, it's a great question. I mean, first of all, as I say, I'm a six on the hawk scale, right? Which means I don't want war and I really don't want what we believe or what I believe is a true cold war, which to me is what we have with the Soviet Union and the United States back in the 80s, where you believed any single day a nuke could launch through the sky. Um, what we need to do is look back to, I think, um, what happened to us in the early 1800s. If you recall, to build our industrial revolution, we actually did a lot of tech theft and IP theft and tariffs and protectionist policies against the European nations because they were so far ahead of us. So if you look at China today, they're sort of following the exact playbook that America had 200 years ago. The difference was back when we had gotten up to a level of standard in our industrial evolution that was almost the equivalent, if not the equivalent of the of European nations, they finally put their foot down. And they said, no more of this. We are rebalancing. We are resetting the relationship. We don't want to go to war with you and we're not going to shut you off. We, in fact, want to continue a relationship, but we want it on better terms that are pro-Europe. And that's what we need to do in, re in terms of China. We help them build this massive economy that they have, a huge market, a market with 800 million middle class or above consumers. They built it on our backs. We should monetize that. We should get our money back. And quite frankly, the exchange of both culture and commerce is the two of the five glues that I call Fenton's five forces that keep countries from going to war. Politics, national security, and human rights, we do not have any sort of idea of agreement between China. But culture and commerce exchange, those are two that we could. And those are two that will keep essentially cell phone and cell tower talking to each other, unlike what we had more than 40 years ago between the US and China, which was a completely frozen relationship. And now that they're a nuclear power, now that they're a superpower, to have a frozen relationship with them would only lead us into a definite Cold War and perhaps a full hot war. And that's what we don't want. So there's lots of reasons not to fully decouple. 
But what we need to do is start disruptively and constructively changing the dynamic. And that does mean some sacrifice. That means everybody with shares that are traded on the New York Stock Exchange expect them to go down over the next two years because we're going to have to move supply chains back. We're going to have to invest in R&D. We're going to have to start getting more self-reliant on our supply chains, particularly the ones with national security issues. And on top of it, we're going to have to address some of the unfairness that is going on in the trade imbalance. And that is going to cause some short-term pain financially. But in the long run, I guarantee whatever we lose on share prices over two years, we will gain well more of over the course of the next 10 or 20 years. And on top of it, we will keep our leadership position in the world. You know, wonderful plan. Um, and it it sounds, you know, like it would in theory, if we were dealing with a um a partner, um, then, then that would work. But we wouldn't be in this position if we were dealing with a partner. And I remember, um, as you referred to as well, uh, Donald Trump, before he even had any ambitions of running for office, would go on these business shows in New York. Uh, and he would talk about his main pet peeve in life is how the Chinese are taking advantage of us um, in terms of global trade. Uh, and and uh, that was what would, would keep him up at night is how the Chinese need to be, you know, they need to play fair, not play at all. Um, you know, what indication do we have that your plan would work and that they would play along, that they wouldn't go rogue on us if we tried to kind of, you know, punish them a bit? Well, one of the things I did when I when I wrote the book is is try to explain how I was a cog in the wheel and didn't see essentially what Donald Trump saw. I mean, I was really under the spell of globalism is best and just open that market no matter what. And I wasn't the only one. There were plenty of others just like me that were doing it. And we weren't bad people selling the soul of the nation in terms of, you know, making money or whatever it was. Yes. It was capitalism, but we thought it was capitalism with benefits too for the country that we cared about, right? And then over time, we started to realize that wasn't the case. And for me, it was so late in the game. Like I didn't realize, I didn't have my awakening as much as I was warned, even by my wife. I didn't have my awakening until Daryl Morey's tweet of seven words supporting the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong. And I knew the second I saw that tweet, I didn't even know who he was, but he was the GM of the Houston Rockets. And I know having worked with the NBA that the Houston Rockets were the mm -hmm. biggest branded name there. And then that was going to be a problem for the NBA in China. What I didn't realize was how fumbling and bumbling the NBA was going to be in regards to what their response was to that controversy. And then even more so what the American public's response was going to be. And the American public was completely agape at the fact that we were pandering and kowtowing so much to the CCP in order to get the NBA in there or Hollywood in there or any other product and service, right? So now I would say yeah. that everybody engaged with the exchange between the US and China is aware of the problem. None of us are under that spell anymore, okay? So that's number one that makes me feel hopeful. Number two is the politicians, the people that run our country are now aware of it and are now starting to unite on that cause. Number three is journalists are, are starting to. The right side of the equation has seen it for a long time and has been calling it out. And I, I commend them on that. But at least now the Jake Tappers and the left, and I just did an NPR interview the other day, 
people are starting to see it on the left too. I was on CBS this morning a month ago. It's starting to catch on there too. So that means the public's starting to catch on. And when the public catches on, remember it's all about money. When the public catches on, they can actually vote or make moves with their pocketbook, with their checkbook, with their money. So if they start to see companies that continue in the engagement of kowtowing or pandering or doing something that's not in the best interest of the United States of America with China, they can penalize those companies here on the ground in the U.S. And at some point, the balance of, hey, is it worth making extra money in China doing all the nefarious things Mm -hmm. that we have to do to do it? Is that worth more than what's happening in the Western markets in the United States where we're getting penalized for doing that? That's where the money is going to count. So you have the combo of political leadership, criticism from journalists, and the ability to blow horn out what's happening and let the public see it. And then the public and the ramifications of them holding back their money for the products and services of these companies, that's what's going to make it work. You know, it's interesting you brought up the, the Maury NBA uh, issue. I We were planning on, on showing a clip from that. And this was, you know, um, I have to apologize in ahead, uh, ahead of time to my husband because he's a Clippers fan. But I wanted to show the reaction from LeBron um, to this situation and on defending basically the, the Chinese government. Let's listen to that clip. I don't want to get into a, a, word, a, a word or sentence uh, feud with Daryl. With Daryl uh, Morey, but I believe he wasn't educated on on, on the situation at hand, and um, and he spoke, and, and uh, so many people uh, could have been harmed, uh, not only financially but physically, emotionally, spiritually. Uh, so just be careful what we what we tweet and we say and what we do. Even though yes, we do have freedom of speech, but there can be um, a lot of negative that comes with that too. Do we really have freedom of speech? <laughs> he, he's saying Maury wasn't educated and that there would be ramifications um, of all kinds. Well, first of all, Daryl Maury is one of the most educated people. Uh, you know, if you look up his MIT background and everything else, I mean, he blows away most of us that think we're, we're intellects. So he's very educated on the issue. In fact, he's also very passionate about the issue. I think where where the issue really hit me hard is on freedom of speech rights, which you just brought up. We don't have those abilities. Now, that's something that the Chinese Communist Party has pushed beyond their borders over the last decade. There used to be a time when we could censor product inside of that market and sell it in that market in its censored form. And we could still have the uncensored form in other markets and sell that around the world, whether it was a movie that... For instance, the Top Gun film where Senator Cruz is talking about how we, they took off the, uh, the flag of Taiwan and Japan in that movie, not just for inside China, but around the world. There was a day and time where that wouldn't have to be whitewashed from around the world. It would just be done inside China. The same thing for free speech. What Daryl Morey said, those seven words, was done in Houston, Texas, on Twitter. Now, Think about it. China does has a firewall that keeps any information that they don't want hitting their populace from ever getting into that country, number one. Number two is they don't even have Twitter in China. So China could have easily censored what he said from anybody in China other than the 
few people that have VPNs from ever knowing he uttered those words. <laughs> Instead, they wanted to use their wolf warrior diplomacy, their censorship and narrative and propaganda push around the world against Daryl Morey and say, you know what? You can't say what you said uh, here in the, China, in the People's Republic of China, and you can't say it when you're standing in the United States of America. And that is completely wrong. Now, LeBron James, all the criticism that he got, yes, completely warranted. We wanted him to do the right thing. The problem is, is that he's got lots of skin in the game when it comes to China. Mm -hmm. So when I saw, say, Senator Marco Rubio say, LeBron James, he was terrible. He didn't stand up for what's right for America and blah, blah, blah. Well, I go, well, Senator Marco Rubio, with all respect, you don't lose $50 million by making that statement here in the United States of America. LeBron James does. And I'm not saying that's right for him to stay silent, but I'm saying there is a difference. There's skin in the game that he has that you don't have. Now, what I would say is that LeBron James should be the focal point of unification behind the league, behind other leagues, behind all their sports partners around the world to essentially say, we want LeBron James to say the right thing. Mm -hmm. And if there's retaliation in China against his freedom of speech rights, mm -hmm. all the leagues, all the league partners are going to stop doing business with China until it's fixed. Mm -hmm. Now, that sounds crazy. That sounds like herding cats, right? But it's not because we saw that actually work this summer when the BLM and the violence of police against um, minority, that whole crusade was occurring. The NBA took a stand and they boycotted playing games. And what happened? All the other leagues joined them and all the other NBA partners joined them. That was a domestic issue, but we saw a unification happen. We can do the same unification against something that's a threat to America overseas. It's just as easy. We just got to have the resolve and the willingness right. to do it. Right. It's just using our leverage, as you said. That's our leverage to use. Um, you know, this all speaks to access. You know, the access that the Chinese have over us, whether it's in China, um, in trade, or here in the United States. I think recently what happened with um, Eric Swalwell, the congressman who was um, allegedly having an affair with a Chinese spy, um, suddenly uh, brought to light you know, all of the different uh, Chinese elements that are here, you know, doing the, that espionage work, whether it's in our universities, in our labs, trying to steal COVID vaccine information, um, trying to get all kinds of technological information, you know, interning, um, you know, you, you can't go around accusing every Chinese person you see, and that's not the point here. Um, but, you know, what is, can you quantify this for us? What is the extent of their reach? What is the extent of their penetration into our society? What sectors are they hitting? And what do we do about it? Well, it's a great question. First of all, you brought up a great point about Chinese people. The issue we have is not with Chinese people. In fact, I have lots of friends that are Chinese and I actually really enjoy that country and I love going there and I'd love to go back. Our issue is the Chinese Communist Party. So we can't conflate those two. Number two is um, when you look at China, the Chinese Communist Party and China overall, they have a 5,000 year history. And the beauty of that for them in regards to the way they look at the world is that they have a long-term view of things. And that allows them to play a long-term long view of a chess game versus 
our situation where we talked about it earlier. We look at stock price fluctuations, quarterly results, two to four year election cycles, and the fact that our history has only been around for 200, 250 years. So we are very short term in the way we think. And on top of it, we sort of play a game of checkers right now, which I'm hoping to change um, at some point in the very near future. So if you look at the access question you brought up, it's really interesting. And I'm going to bring up once again how complicit I was in this mess. But Cornell University, which you brought up, I went to, is now in a big um, controversy because they were the first Ivy League school and one of the first schools in the nation to open up an operation in China. They did it in conjunction with Peking University. I actually personally was involved with bringing some U.S. congressional delegations through that campus to shake hands with the students and the faculty there because I was actually really proud of that. Um, I thought it was really trailblazing and very smart to do. Now, what you see is that things like that are allowing access for Chinese communism propaganda to infiltrate our education system. And on top of it, the exchange of their students under the national security law, which is a really, really tough law, prohibits what they can and can't say when on the ground on foreign soil. Mm -hmm. So there's a certain amount of uh, subtle propaganda that occurs through that type of educational exchange. And then you combine that with the Confucius Institutes and various other things that are happening that are rather pernicious um, between our world of academia and the Chinese Communist Party. It all adds up to this really smart long-term chess game that they play to infiltrate the way we think about China, because none of those kids that are at universities today can really do much, right, on behalf of the Chinese Communist Party. But they're not thinking that way. They're thinking 20 years in the future, some of those kids at some of those top universities are going to be in very powerful business or political leadership positions. And that's where they want that mentality and that ability to think about China in a more soft and dovish way to work in their advantage. It's a really, really smart, clever, long-term approach. And it's something that I think we also need to look at when we talk about, and Donald Trump brought up TikTok and ByteDance, and the fact that harvesting big data is gonna be used against us. I look at my 14-year-old twins who use TikTok, and I don't think anything nefarious is gonna come of whatever's being tracked by them doing dance videos. But what is happening is all that big data is being harvested and is going to be used in combination with AI technology somewhere in the future. It might be next year. It might be 10 years from now. It might be 20 years from now. The Chinese Communist Party doesn't care. They just know they're going to use it at right. some point right. against us. It's part of the art of war. And it's something we need to be really cognizant of. They play a very long game. And we're playing something that actually to most Americans looks a bit like a slow moving train wreck. And that is something that's very hard to get rallied behind to try to fix. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, I think you hit upon the, the most important uh, piece of this strat of the Chinese strategy that's being lost on a lot of lawmakers and, 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 and decision makers, frankly, about the long term game that the Chinese are playing. And just this last week, I think we were all, you know, blindsided by the fact that Iran and China just struck a 25 year deal. I mean, 25 
five years um, for $400 billion to be invested into the Iranian uh, economy, which is really just buying Iran. They basically purchased Iran and, and all the access, uh, not just to Iran, but to the Middle East entirely. Uh, and, you know, this this comes, I mean, it, it wasn't such a big deal in the in the mainstream media um, as it was, let's say, in, in my world. I cover the Middle East um, and, and foreign policy, for that matter. And I just saw this as, well, how are we now going to deal with or curb either one of our adversaries if they're, you know, jumping to, into bed together for the next 25 years? I mean, what are the ramifications of this deal for the United States? Well, it's... I mean, there's so much nuance to it. So I'm going to hit it from the top part of the onion. And I, I mean, I've listened to some of your experts talk about this and I'm in awe with some of the, the analysis that they do. So I'm going to let them do that expert, expert stuff. But let's look at the top part of the onion peel. Okay. Number one is we've created a vacuum. Those sanctions with Iran means Iran needs other friends out there. China has essentially got no reason to be friends with Iran. There just isn't but they're the enemy of an enemy. So they fill the vacuum. Now on top of it, China's number one goal, the Chinese Communist Party's number one goal is to keep 1.4 billion people just happy enough that they don't revolt, okay? That means provide them all of what they need and some of what they want and messaging that they can aspire to more down the road. A lot of that depends on energy sources. And while they're building up all the other infrastructure and the different renewable fuels and all that kind of stuff, they need oil and they need oil badly. So mm -hmm. the Iranian deal, which is for $400 billion worth of, uh, of oil over that 25 years, is crucial in terms of the actual commodity that, that powers a lot of their energy supply. The other thing that I think is, and I haven't seen enough commentary about it, and I'm hoping everybody that's way more intelligent than me is paying attention to it. But that's the fact that the sanctions have kept Western alliances from getting involved with the infrastructure building of Iran. And you would say, well, what's the big deal around that? Well, I would say that unfortunately involves 5G technology. And who has 48% of all 5G patents? China. And what company has half of those patents? Huawei. And what was the company that was supposed to be doing the 5G network in Iran? Ericsson, a Swedish company. They are no longer. So guess who's going to be doing that now? Huawei. And if you look at what that deal talked about that is going to be part of the cooperation between China and Iran, number one was military. Number two was intelligence. And number three is research. Guess what Huawei provides? Massive big data research ability for AI that is going to be used against us either with Iran or without because Iran won't be able to control what their big data is being used for because it's going to be in the hands of the Chinese. Wow. This is all incredible. And, you know, it's it's folding right in, you know, in front of our eyes. And yet... Um, what can people do in the short term? I mean, if you're just a concerned citizen, you're saying, wow, this really speaks to me. I'm fearful for what the future holds. Um, how can they educate themselves more? How can people become more aware? Um, and, you know, what would you advise people? Well, I'll answer that question first, but I'm actually, because you're such an expert in the Middle East region. Can I ask you one question? Sure, why not? <laughs> do you see China being able to balance essentially relationships with Iran 
Saudi Arabia, Oman, uh, who else are they with? Uh, Turkey, UAE, and uh, Bahrain. Those are all countries that don't necessarily have a lot of common ground. And then on top of it, I'm curious how China balances Shi'i Iran with Sunni Muslims and the fact that the Uyghur situation is also a Muslim issue involving Sunni, uh, involving Sunnis. Yeah. I feel like there's a herding cat issue that might mire China in the Middle East in a worse way than we ever have been. It's interesting because I think that we definitely have a new Middle East. The countries that you mentioned, a lot of them have signed on to the Abraham Accords, for example. So they've completely switched um, their, you know, um, allegiance to uh, Israel and the United States versus Iran. It was really one of the reasons, not just for, you know, prosperity and and um, economic growth, was to one of the reasons was to curb the Iranian regime's uh, opportunity in the region, and obviously that will will affect things. But I think China's approach to foreign policy is kind of like spectrum. If you live in Southern California, like I do, um, you know, you hate spectrum, but you call them anyway, uh, and you need their services. So you pay the bill, you curse at them all the time. You have to wait on hold for three hours. They're awful. If they tell you they're coming for services, they'll, they'll say, we'll come anytime between 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. So there goes your day. Um, but you'll use them anyway. And I think that that's really the way that China has operated. There's no tender, you know, there's no love, there's no hand holding, there's no, um, you know, there's no ally, there's no friendship in, in its dealings with any any country. Um, and for that reason, I think if they have something that that the country that it's dealing with wants, then there will be that um, special relationship just for that. You know, we're living in a very post-allied world where people, you know, um, deal with each other based on shared interests, um, just the way that many countries deal with Saudi Arabia or they'll deal with Turkey and they don't agree with everything that they're doing. Well, China is a worse example, um, but I think it's it's positioned itself to to have things that people want and will use uh, in order to, to just meet their bottom line. Um, and I think we've, we've had a very tough year globally. I think everyone's in, in a very similar place. So in order to recoup, in order to I think we all think short term and China thinks long term. And I think you, you nailed that point. So um, because of that, I think they won't have any issues finding new partners all around the world. Um, so, yeah, I, I actually want to let you finish the last question as to what people can do, how they can get more interest, in, how they can get more educated. Um, and what's very interesting is your book, which is right behind you. I, um, I actually just ordered it. I'm going to tell people the name of the book again, Feeding the Dragon Inside the Trillion Dollar Dilemma Facing Hollywood, the NBA and American Business. Um, I think your your perspective is is brilliant. I know you, you mentioned a lot of the PhDs and a lot of the the um, very educated and and, and impressive uh, people that talk on this topic. But um, there's something about your perspective that speaks to the truth, and it speaks to what's going on inside a a very large country with a lot of things, a lot of nuances going on on the ground. Most of them having to do with exactly what you said. Hollywood, sports, celebrities, wanting, you know, having to ride a bike to work every day and all of a sudden getting the chance to ride in a Lamborghini and not having anything in between that, those two items. Um, so I, I encourage you all to get the book to understand really the intricate, intricate uh, situation that we have with China and to look at it from a very long-term uh, perspective as to what they're up to for the next two decades. And with that, I'll let you have the final word, Chris. Yeah, well, I 
count me humbled. Thank you for the really kind words and thanks for um, ordering the book. And And I can guarantee to your your viewers that, that the book is not something that's dry. It's pretty engaging. Take it from somebody that's been in the Hollywood business. I wanted to make it a fun read as well as something that provides lessons and talks about how we actually got here. I also do something very similar to the book and, and a, approaching China and sort of a populist sort of outside of the onion side of things, which is a podcast called Feeding the Dragon also. And also you can engage with me at the Dragon Feeder on Twitter because I love that exchange. And no one knows all the right answers or no one has any wrong answers. It's really about discussion. And one of the things that you just brought up about the Middle East gives me hope because it's showing that China, even though they're long-term chess players, they tend to be sort of fair-weathered fans, right? And those friendships that they seem to be cultivating with the Middle East are very, very shallow. And considering the challenges that the world is facing um, in the coming decades, you're going to need some deep relationships in order to get through them. And I don't think any one nation can do it by themselves. So I like to believe that China's going to get a bit mired in the Middle East mm -hmm. and cause them to at least weaken a bit and lose a little bit of their global hubris, which I seem to think is at an all-time peak right now. So that's a good thing. And in regards to people getting engaged beyond sort of the stuff that I'm doing and other experts, I would highly recommend just staying in touch with what is happening between the US and China and trying to keep track of some of the companies and the entities that are of interest to you and what they're doing in their approach and understand what your local government and what your national government representatives are doing about it. And if you don't like it, voice it up. And that's not just with political leaders, it's also with business leaders. You can vote with your wallet and you can make yourself heard. Everything starts at a local level, which means everything starts at an individual level. And the more we spread the word on this issue, the more we spread the word on this China challenge, the better we are to address it and talk about it. And even better, the white knight, the thing that is the greatest silver lining about China, is that it is a common challenge facing all Americans. We're not gonna talk about gods or guns or you know cultural issues or anything. This is a financial security issue. It's an economic security issue. It's flight or fight. It is a human instinct that we need to address with a common challenge. And if we do it, we are gonna unite a country that seems to get more divided by the day. It is going to have a useful purpose, and it's going to create a better relationship in the long run between the two superpowers. That's what allows me to sleep at night and get up in the morning and feel hopeful. So I hope, hopefully you do too. And thank you so much for having me on the show. I was honored. Absolutely. Thank you, Chris. Well, you know, we will definitely continue to keep calling on you. Um, this is wonderful the way you break things down and uh, help us all understand this much better. And uh, I hope the big guys at the White House and everyone else who's in charge of making these decisions are listening to you because I think you have some great, very constructive ways of dealing with uh, China policy, which is not very easy. Uh, for those of you who would like to sign up for our weekly podcast, you can go to youtube.com slash Lisa Daftari. And uh, for our daily top 10 email, please go to foreigndesknews.com. Thank you Chris, thank you all, and we will see you next week.